Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. Each mini-series in this podcast will explore a different aspect of the cultural, social, economic, or biographical history of women. If you'd like to see what I've got planned, ask a question, or make a suggestion, please visit my website at www.herhalfofhistory.com. Before I get started, drumroll please! My big announcement is about the second series, which will start on April 8th. For those who thought it ironic that a woman who only wears jeans and t-shirts was talking about fashion, you'll be pleased to know that I am moving on to something I have even less experience with. The second series is on women who seized power. I'll start with an overall look at why these women needed to seize power. That is, why weren't they already in power? Then I'll move on to some biographies of women who said enough about this second-class citizen business and took control. So please tell your friends, the ones who couldn't bring themselves to listen to a podcast about clothes, maybe they'll listen to A Girl's Guide to Staging a Coup. But for today, we are wrapping up What's in the Closet and How Did It Get There? And this is episode 1.8, the Q&A episode. A thousand thanks to everyone who sent questions, and especially to Lily, who sent several. Question number one from Lily. When did athleisure become mainstream? Now here we are getting into territory that I have a problem with. When I was taking modern American history in college, one of my fellow students asked how a particular issue was related to some current news item, and my professor looked at him blankly and said, I'm a history professor. I don't know anything past 1980. It has been an undisclosed number of years since then, so I'll take it a bit beyond 1980, but athleisure is very recent history. The term athleisure itself only dates from 1979. That's not to say that no sportswear influenced the mainstream earlier. Coco Chanel incorporated ideas from hunting, riding, and boating into her styles, but you'll notice that those sports were hardly mainstream. Those are a wealthy woman's sports. Fitness, as a booming idea, is from the 70s and the 80s. Back in Jane Austen's time, a fine lady's exercise consisted of taking a turn about the room, and you hardly needed a separate outfit for that. When Jane Fonda was slinging her legs all over TV in the 80s, millions of women suddenly needed a leotard. It was also in the 80s that streetwear became a fashion trend, which has not really left us. With companies like Calvin Klein and Tommy Hilfiger putting streetwear on the runway, it was now mainstream. More recently, Lululemon brought yoga pants into non-yoga settings, and even Chanel has put sneakers on the runway. The assumption is that our grandmothers who got dressed up in gloves and fancy hats to go downtown would be scandalized, and they probably would have been. But in a strange way, athleisure really is a continuation of what clothes have always been about, which is status. If the idea is to suggest that you are on your way to the gym, you have to be someone who can afford a gym membership and has time to go. Being fit, health conscious, and toting your overpriced water bottle is a social signal in our modern world. It reminds me of a meme I saw years ago that said, I don't always go to the gym, but when I do, I make sure to tell Facebook. Jen asks, why didn't you cover the kimono? Well, let's fix that. The reason I left it out in the first place is because unlike the sari, the kimono really has given way to more modern clothing. If you walk down the average Japanese street, the women aren't wearing kimonos. 
In fact, I ran across multiple authors trying, and mostly failing, to explain why the sari hasn't gone the way of the kimono, and speculating about whether it ever will. But they are still worn at weddings, festivals, ceremonies, and of course, by tourists. So here's a brief summary. The kimono dates back to the Heian period of Japan, which is 794 to 1192, common era. Their defining characteristics were straight cuts of a fabric sewn together. Since it wasn't fitted, just straight cuts, that means easy to sew, easy to wear, easy to fit. Definitely my kind of clothing. Like so many other articles of clothing, there was nothing gendered about it. Men, women, rich, poor, they all wore them. What did differ was the quality of the cloth and the designs on them. And if you were rich, these could be absolute works of art. Highly respected artists designed pattern books that were circulated for copying. It's as if Michelangelo and da Vinci were fabric designers. And actually, Michelangelo is often reported to have designed the clothing for the Swiss guards at the Vatican, though that's disputed. And if he did, let's just say it's not his best work. But I digress. The point is that for centuries, Japan was virtually untouched by outside influences, and the kimono flourished. When the outside world made its appearance, it did so with a bang that left Japan reeling. In the Meiji period, 1868-1912, women were encouraged to wear kimonos. It was a way of trying to hold on to what it meant to be Japanese in the face of so much change. Men, on the other hand, were encouraged to do just the opposite. Western clothes, Western progress, beat the West at their own game. It is a not unfamiliar story of having women focus as the bastions of culture and tradition. By the end of World War II, kimonos started to go out of fashion for women as well. Western casual clothing was ubiquitous, and Japan was very focused on progress and moving forward. And they've been very successful at that. So for the past 50 to 70 years, it's been more common for Japanese women not to wear kimonos. But it would be wrong to say that they never wear them. They certainly do wear them for special occasions. Veronica asks, why didn't you talk more about the corset? Especially in the Ridiculous Fashion episode. Good question! Two reasons. One is that the corset is so ridiculous that a lot of people already know about it. And the other is that I am saving it for a future series on reshaping the female body. One that would talk about the corset, Chinese foot binding, head shaping, etc. Miriam wants to know why pink is for girls and blue is for boys. This trend is pretty recent on the scale of world history. The fact is that babies of past eras mostly wore whatever was on hand, and what was on hand was mostly white. Sure, it got dirty, but it could also be bleached. Plus, colored dyes were often expensive and washed out anyway because they weren't colored fast. And remember that you spent nine months pregnant without any idea whether you were having a boy or a girl. So if you were going to get things ready, the color had to work either way. White was the way to go, until synthetic dyes were developed in the mid to late 19th century. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century that we start seeing distinctions in colors for babies. Predictably, it was an idea invented by department stores. Because if they can convince you that child number two can't possibly wear the same baby clothes as child number one, then you'll have to buy new ones. And if you can believe it, the pink was for the boys, blue was for girls. Why? Well, and I quote, Pink! Being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for the boy, while blue, which is more delicate and dainty, is prettier for the girl. 
Elsewhere, this is backed up with the irrefutable mythological proof that pink is related to red, which is the color of war, and Aries, the god of war, while blue was the color of Venus, and the Virgin Mary, for that matter, as well. The colors didn't get flipped until around the Second World War, with the baby boomers being the first generation to get assigned pink for girls and blue for boys. What I haven't been able to discover is why the flip. None of my sources have provided any explanation, mythological or otherwise. Of course, having grown up with the expectation that pink is for girls, many boys and men continue to avoid it later in life. At the same time, blue is an extremely popular choice for girls and women. So at this point, who's getting the last laugh? Men really do have a much more limited range of clothing choices than women, poor things. Lily asked, how did women express themselves through their clothing during eras with heavy fashion and social constraints? Or did they express themselves? The answer to this is a definite yes, but how exactly they express themselves depends on which time and culture we are talking about. As I was digging into this, I also ran into the issue of what do we call heavy constraints? For example, many Westerners would call the hijab a heavy constraint, right? No showing your hair? That's a tough requirement for women who want to use their hair to express themselves. But women in hijabs are constantly expressing themselves in other ways. Hijabs can be in different colors, they can be different fabrics, they can be tied in different ways. So what might seem repressive to some really opens up some other ways of expressing yourself. In the English-speaking world, some of the most repressive dress rules for women were the ones surrounding Victorian mourning. I touched on this last week, but here's some more detail. To put it bluntly, Victorians had an unhealthy obsession with death and all its ramifications. Fashion-wise, men often got off with just a black armband, but women were expected to wear all black for quite a while, depending on how closely related the deceased person was. And not just black, but dull black. Bombazine and crepe were chosen as the designated fabrics specifically because they were unattractive. Jewelry had to be made of jet. The ribbon used for trimming was called love ribbon, without any pattern but stripes. And then, as time goes on, it becomes acceptable to move into gray or lavender, maybe with some white ornaments. Many women hated mourning rules, partly because of the expense. Remember, new clothes weren't cheap, and many a woman was in mourning because she had just lost her breadwinner. Added to that, crepe stained your skin black if it got wet, and the dyes in many of them were toxic. All extremely repressive, right? And yet there was expression possible in narrow ways. Most of the fashion plates of mourning dresses are showing a very fashionable dress, which just happens to be in black crepe. So the neckline, the waistline, the bustles, they all followed whatever the current style was. The Workwoman's Guide, published in 1838, gave many, many sewing patterns and instructions, as well as rules about how mourning worked. So, for example... The guide offers a pattern for a pretty collar that can be added to a morning shawl, dress, or cloak. The collar can be made of clear muslin, white crepe, widow's lawn, net, or tulle, with a couple of different types of frills. Jewelry had to be jet, but you could choose many designs of different rings, brooches, and earrings. They also sometimes incorporated the hair of the deceased person into some jewelry. So even within these extremely repressive rules, women found a way to make some choices. Which is not to say that they wouldn't be criticized for their choices by some, but let's be honest, women today are also widely criticized for what they do or don't wear. How much that matters depends on whether you have reason to care what other people think. 
Some women have the means and support and emotional stability not to care. Others don't. I will also say, just as a final thought on this, that our modern concept of self-expression, being authentic, being true to yourself, and all that guff is not necessarily a given throughout history. In many, perhaps most, cultures, there wasn't so much individualism, and the message these women might want to express is, I fit in. And that's another reason why their clothes might look very much the same to us. Lily also asks, when did designer brands start to emerge? What impact did that have? Okay, this is an interesting question, because throughout history, most clothing has been handmade by the wearer, or possibly a family member or servant or slave. So brand wasn't really a thing. If you were wealthy enough, you could afford to pay someone to make your clothes. It's not exactly a brand, but there were famous dressmakers, the ones all the women wanted to go to if only they could afford it. For example, in Washington, D.C., in the 1850s and 60s, the dressmaker was Elizabeth Keckley, an African-American woman who had purchased her own freedom. Among her clients was Mary Todd Lincoln, who needed something fancy for the inauguration. Twice. A brand, as we know it, can't really exist on a big scale until there is ready-to-wear clothing affordable for the masses. One of the earliest examples of ready-to-wear clothing was in the War of 1812 when the U.S. government made ready-to-wear uniforms for its soldiers. Over the next century, department stores bloomed, and many men could find the majority of their clothes there. Women's clothes were very much more fitted, which makes ready-to-wear clothes difficult, as any woman who has ever tried to buy a pair of jeans knows perfectly well. Some of us just throw up our hands in despair and wear ill-fitting clothes. In the early 20th century, women's styles changed enough that it was possible to do ready-to-wear clothing for women, offered at department stores. But these weren't the super-chic, expensive styles. Chanel opened her first shop in 1910, but she was selling hats. Clothes were added later. Christian Dior was first employed as a designer in 1937. Both Chanel and Dior were making bespoke clothing at this point, not ready-to-wear, which meant it was beyond the dreams of most women. Department stores sold knockoffs at a fraction of the price. Yves Saint Laurent was the first haute couture designer to open a ready-to-wear line in 1966, and others quickly jumped on the commercial bandwagon. So while the brands definitely influenced what women were wearing well before that, it is at that point that designer brands became a major player for most women. There is simply no denying that the majority of us can't or won't pay for bespoke clothing. Instead, we'll wander around the clothing store wondering why the so-called standard sizes aren't actually standardized. Incidentally, the first attempt to standardize those sizes was made by the Roosevelt administration during the Depression. I'd say they still have some work to do. One interesting side effect of the cheap, mass-produced, branded clothing is that people buy far more clothes. Fashions change more than they used to, simply because buying something new on a whim is a possibility for so many more people. So there are more designers, more ideas, more competition, but also more market. That's good for self-expression, good for the designers, but less good for the environment. Only the oil industry is a bigger polluter than the fashion industry. Obviously, more could be said about all of these questions, but that is where we are going to call it quits for today. Many thanks again for all who asked questions, left reviews or comments, and followed me on Facebook or Twitter. It really does make a difference to a new podcast. 
Remember that next week is off, but I hope you'll tune back in two weeks for the series Women Who Seized Power. Thanks! The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.